We've passed the halfway mark of the Premier League season and we have a title race on our hands. Manchester City, no strangers to coming from behind to lift the trophy. And Pep Guardiola's men just five points behind the leaders, Liverpool, and they do have a game in hand. But City do face a tough Saturday evening trip to Newcastle. So are we about to see another twist in the race for Premier League glory? I'm Kevin Hatchard and this is Football Only Better. that time of year when everybody seems to be ill and our squad has been rocked by illness this week so it's just me and tipping's iron man mark o'hare this week mark isn't allowed to get ill there are too many games to watch too many ratings to compile mark happy new year to you just talking in general about the title race before we get into city's trip to newcastle Take a look at the Betfair exchange outrights for the Premier League. City 1.8 favourites right now. Liverpool trading at 3.75. Does that seem about right to you or is there some juice in that Liverpool price? I would say there's possibly juice in the Manchester City price at 1.8, Kev. Um, I've been quite staunch in my support for Man City even through the the rough times this season. Um, I guess through... Uh, previous experiences now, it's not just uh, this season, but in previous campaigns too, we've seen Manchester City not necessarily fly out of the traps, really. Uh, and they do tend to have a lean spell before Christmas or before the New Year period. Sometimes it extends into early January too. But around this time of year, we do start to see City grow as a team. We've seen them have plenty of injuries across the board this season, uh, right through the spine, real key players, standout players. De Bruyne, the obvious one, Haaland more recently, John Stones, who was exceptional last campaign in his hybrid role. Um, they've all missed a long period of time, really. So we've not seen City anywhere near their best, but um, suddenly they've been away for a couple of weeks, got some sunshine on their backs, won another trophy at kind of half pace, really, in the Club World Cup. And... Uh, didn't really have to do anything but go through the motions to, to pick up more silverware. And um, with De Bruyne now back in the squad, Doku back as well, suddenly that, that spark is is back there in that team. And um, they've come back from the, the Club World Cup and put in some very impressive performances. And um, with Haaland due back now in the next couple of weeks, possibly this weekend, uh, and all the players who were ill ahead of the FA Cup tie um, also being available again, suddenly City are starting to look very, very strong again. So, uh, you know, with that game in hand, you have to assume that City pick up three points and that gap is down to two points. And my issue with Liverpool, um, which I've had since the very start of the season, is just the evolution, the revolution of that midfield. Um, is it going to take, or how long is it going to take until they're, they're really sort of at, at top notch? We've seen recently too, they've they've suffered injuries, particularly in defence and in that midfield three. And um, I'm just worried about the, the lack of control sometimes, especially away from home. We know what they're capable of at Anfield, but going away to the big boys, can they control a game? Can their midfield stay solid uh, against the toughest of tests? And um, that would probably be my concern with Liverpool. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Liverpool or Arsenal, really, who was going to win the title. And I did favour Liverpool in that scenario just because I thought they had more room to to improve. But I didn't expect Arsenal to to drop off as they have done more recently. So I still think it is a three-way title race. But um, yeah, if I was a backer now, it's to be backing City 1.8. It's hard to look past the return of Kevin De Bruyne as well, isn't it? Because... They found solutions without him. Julian Alvarez has shown what a great all-round player he is. 
Bill Foden in that 10 role, certainly the last few weeks, has looked ever so good. But having De Bruyne back in the team, that makes an enormous difference. Yeah, and hopefully a fit De Bruyne too. So if you listen to, to what's being said from, from him and from Manchester City, they were very aware of how the injury came about, the overload of, of, of him last season. So they've worked really hard and taken, been very, very patient in their approach really to, to bring him back to, to full fitness. And um, I haven't seen a huge amount of him since he's been back. I don't think anyone has really. But um, if he does reach his peak standards sooner or later, it's a, it's a huge, huge boast boost for, for City. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've been hugely impressed by Phil Foden uh, this season. We've not seen a huge amount of Jack Grealish on the other side um, because of injuries as well. Um, but um, yeah, Alvarez, I, I wonder whether he does need someone like Haaland leading the line. Of, I think he's a better player when he's got someone else, not necessarily alongside him, but sort of taking the burden off him too. I'm, I'm not... Yeah overly keen on him as a as a leading striker out on his own so I think Haaland's return will, will certainly help him too so uh, a lot to like about City going forward and, and defensively too you know they were giving away some really sloppy goals there before Christmas the underlying metrics were were still pretty strong they weren't giving away too many opportunities but the opportunities they were giving away tended to be from silly errors and counter-attacks and set pieces and um, you know if they can just brush that up a little bit then suddenly in both boxes City looking very very fearsome again on the Newcastle side of things, much needed derby win at Sunderland. It's fair to say they got a helping hand against Sunderland and gave away some dreadful goals. Ballard with the own goal and the penalty as well. And then that awful giveaway from Sunderland for the second goal just after half time. They've started to get one or two injured players back. Do you feel like it's a Newcastle team on the up or are they still in quite a fragile position for you? Still a big question mark around Newcastle at the moment. Um, they've gone through a very difficult period. Um, I thought the Sunderland FA Cup tie was a potential banana skin. I thought most people did too, you know, going away to the Stadium of Light after three straight defeats. And it wasn't just the defeats, it was the manner of those losses as well for Newcastle. Um, losing away at Luton, being the first team to fail to score against the Hatters this season. Then that no-show against Nottingham Forest when... Chris Wood just just ran a mock really, and then the battering at Anfield. What turned into Ronaldo, like, <laughs> as in Brazilian Ronaldo, Chris Wood in that game? That was extraordinary. It was. It was remarkable. Um, great to see. But um, yeah, you know, you follow that up with the, the the defeat at Anfield, where they conceded well over thirty shots, and uh, you know, a world record XG figure or a Premier League record XG figure. Um, you did fear for them at Sunderland, and I certainly expected uh, the home team to come out firing in that game and put Newcastle under pressure from the off. But fair play to, to Eddie Howe and his team. They absolutely bossed that tie. Um, sure, they were given a, a helping hand, but I even think from the, the first whistle, they showcased their standards. They took control of the game, and they didn't let that slip throughout the 90 minutes either. So it was a, it was a great bounce back. Whether that's enough to, to sort of get them back on the straight and narrow, I'm not so sure. It was five defeats in seven Premier League games before that FA Cup tie the win against Man United and, and the Fulham game that featured that early red card being the, the only victories in that spell too. But um, yeah, injuries are easing very slightly and they're getting a full week of preparation coming into this game too, which I think is a big, big plus because they have a, had a, a really hectic campaign so far, something they're not quite used to either. So this game against City is taking place on Saturday evening, isn't it? So they're going to be backed by a very vocal crowd. I always think the St. James's Park crowd on an even kickoff or, um, you know, <laughs> almost get worthy of a of point one of a goal, if you like, because they, they can influence the game 
um, that well. So um, the issue, I think, for, for Newcastle is just the, the Indian sign that City have over them, really. I know Newcastle won the, the Cup tie earlier this campaign, but you, know, you don't really count the AFL Cup at that early stage as a, as a big feather in their cap. It's, it's just one league win in 32 against Man City uh, and 26 of those games were defeats as well. So um, that's... Uh, that's a tough task to overcome. And as we've spoken about, City are starting to, to find their groove. But um, even still, I, I looked at the, the prices for this match. Um, City trading around 1.6, um, which feels quite quite short to me. Um, they're minus one goal favourites in the Asian handicap market. And that would be uh, an angle I'd be quite keen to, to oppose, actually. Um, flip it around and back Newcastle plus one at around 196, which requires Man City to win the match by at least two goals for your state to be lost. You know, I can see a case here where City do win the game, but only narrowly. Um, I think Newcastle can be very competitive in this match. And um, City's long-term record uh, away from home at the best teams in the league hasn't been that great, surprisingly. If you ignore the bottom four this season, they've only won twice away in the Premier League. They've also only kept two clean sheets away from home in the Premier League from 10 fixtures this season. So if Newcastle were to grab a goal, City would need three or more for this bet to lose. But go back to the start of last season, City have only won four of 14 away days at top half teams. And they've conceded a goal in 13 of those 14 as well. So again, if Newcastle were to score, City requiring three just to see the bet lost. Um, and for Newcastle, we do know that they do tend to raise their game at home. I've still got them rated as the second strongest home side in the division, which is probably quite surprising to some. They have only lost four times in 29 home league games since the start of last season too. So you kind of build in the fact that those injured or fatigued players have had a full week off. They're playing at St. James's Park off that big win against Sunderland too. Evening kickoff and, um, you know, City's less than impressive away record at, at big teams. And perhaps there is an opportunity for an upset here. I think Newcastle around about five to one to win the game. Probably wouldn't back that, but I do think backing them with a big start is is perhaps an area to, to focus on here. So Newcastle plus one at 195. Yeah, either way, it should be a cracking game. Worth bearing in mind, Betfair is offering a completely free ACA or Bet Builder on football this weekend. T's and C's in the description, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. On Friday night, Burnley faced Luton in a rearranged and very important game in the relegation battle. It was going to be on Monday, but they've moved it. So uh, I was talking to various radio people about the scramble for hotels and what have you and all of the uh, late changes they've had to make. Mark, just looking at this game, it does seem in a weird way that Luton's more direct style in the top division is serving them better than the more cultured way that Burnley operate. Because I guess the way Burnley play, most of the Premier League teams play like that and they play it better. Whereas Luton come and play the kind of football they play and a lot of Premier League teams are like, whoa, what's this? We're not used to this. Why are they, why are they doing this? So yeah, that seems to have caught a few teams out, especially at Kenilworth Road. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think Luton, hands down, have adjusted to Premier League life better than Burnley. But I think they've been aided by the fact that uh, Rob Edwards has basically continued the same theme, the same approach, the same system, um, with a smattering of new players brought in the summer to, to sort of improve them. Um, but they all know their jobs, they all know what's required, and they all know how they're going to approach every game, really. And you know, even the they championship... look as though they can score as well, Mark. I was thinking yeah. like that you see some teams come up into the Premier League or or in some of the 
continental leagues at the, at the top division. And you think they're never going to score a goal. They haven't <laughs> got anybody who looks as though they're going to get more than three or four. But I look at that Luton team and you think, you know, Barkley's a decent presence in midfield. Andros Townsend have always liked. Adebayo up front's great. He's, he's got really got something about him. Uh, Ogbené as well. They've, they've got something about them, haven't they, in attack? They've got a lovely mix, I think, uh, of pace and physicality, uh, the ability to cause problems from set pieces, uh, width about them too, with the, with the formation that they play. Alfie Doughty's having a, a terrific campaign on the, on, on the left of that uh, that back three or that back five, if you if you wish, um, as as a wing back. But um, yeah, all the players you've mentioned have made a big impression. Adebayo, especially um, since he's come in and started leading the line, which is which is great to see. I remember watching him a few times at Walsall when he was a, a really raw teenager. You could see there was a, a player in there, but um, Luton did too, and their recruitment team have done brilliant things in the EFL for the last couple of years. Have, have obviously spotted something in him, but to see him thriving now in the Premier League is is great. But even without him, Carlton Morris is is uh, like a real little hungry tiger kind of charging around there, closing people down, being a nuisance really. And that's probably elements and characteristics that Burnley have lacked. Um, but I also think Burnley kind of handicapped themselves a little bit, well, Vincent Company did, by effectively ripping up his championship winning team and, and trying to start again. Um, I'm still not convinced they're a better 11 or a better squad than they were last season. Um, and you know, obviously it's taken them a long time to try and adjust to Premier League life with these new faces. Um, still trying to play a similar system, but as you say, you know, a lot of Premier League teams have, have bigger budgets and better players to do what they're trying to do better. Um, but what I would say is more recently, there have been a few signs of life from Burnley. Um, Vincent Company himself has been really frustrated by the FA Cup defeat at Spurs, where he felt they missed the opportunities to to get something out of that game, possibly force a replay as well against Liverpool, where in patches they they performed pretty well and competed. Um, so I think they have been better more recently. They do do still lack a, an element of uh, ruthlessness in the final third, um, but they should have an opportunity in this game. Luton have only kept the one clean sheet all season. Um, the game was obviously taking place at Turf Moor, where they do have a horrendous record, but you know, nine defeats in 10 is, is is terrible, but they have had a really, really punishing schedule too. They've played most of the big boys at home so far this season. So this is a very winnable affair, I think, for, for a Burnley perspective. But the market agrees. So they're making them around even money to win this game, which feels tight. It feels short. Um, you know, just, just flip that straight around. I, I'd be much more inclined to back Luton plus half a goal here than be with Burnley. Um, we talked about Luton before um, before New Year, I think it was, or before Christmas when they played yeah. Chelsea. Um, you were right we about talked... that one. You gave them a goal and a half start, did you not? Yeah, and we, we talked about their ability to score goals, um, which is something you've mentioned too. They've now scored in 15 of 19 league games, which is um, incredible, really. Um, they've also already won away at Everton, Sheffield United and Nottingham Forest. And I think that ability to score goals is going to stand them in good stead. Um, they could easily be outside of the bottom three after this game, if they pick up a positive performance or positive results. So I wouldn't dismiss them here as outsiders. I think they've got a very good chance of getting something. But as a, a preferred selection here, I think both teams to score at five to six is a really nice price to, to cheer on. Uh, it's landed in 14 of Luton's 19, which is 74%. And ultimately, if you are trying to sort of side with either team here, I just can't trust them defensively. Um, between them, they've kept just three Premier League clean sheets and conceded 78 goals. I've also got them basically in the bottom two, bottom three for all the worst records in terms of XG against, shots on target faced, big chances allowed, etc. and so on. So if I can't trust them to defend, um, but I think there's ability in forward areas or at least improvements. Burnley have scored in six of the last nine. 
Um, and I also kind of go against what the market is suggesting here, which is, you know, this is a, a tight traditional six pointer or that's what they're expecting it to be. But I actually disagree. I think both teams will see this as a very winnable opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and I don't see why either would take a defensive approach here. Um, yeah, they're know, not going to get uh, many games like this, are they, where they think, right, we actually can take three points here. Absolutely. And um, I think you've seen so far this season, if you look at the games between the promoted clubs and even Luton's fixtures away against bottom half teams, they're all being very goal heavy. Uh, I think there's been 13 goals in three games between the promoted clubs. All seven of Luton's games against teams in 14th and below home and away have gone overs and BTTS as well. So uh, again, you know, it's just kind of breeding into a possible goal heavy game. The guys have already touched on in previous podcasts about the increase in goals per game from the Premier League this season. Um, but there is another angle I think is worth flagging as well. Um, might surprise a few people, but Burnley have been surprisingly strong in terms of their corners earned at Turf Moor, Turf Moor this season. They've forced at least six corners in seven of their 10 matches at home this season. They're averaging 6.7 corners at home, which is really impressive. It puts them seventh in the league for home corner average. Um, again, that's despite having some really tough home games. So they've won at least four corners uh, in every game. They won four against Liverpool, seven against Chelsea, nine against United, seven against Spurs, four against Villa and six against Man City. Uh, just an example, really. Uh, and Luton have conceded six or more corners in seven of nine away, giving up an average of 6.44 per game. So anyway, Burnley have won the corner count in seven of 10 home games. Luton have lost the corner count in seven of nine away. Just stylistically, you expect Burnley to have more ball, more possession, more territory. In theory, that should lend itself to, to a higher corner rate. So you can combine on the bet builder Burnley to win over five and a half corners and Burnley to win the corner count at evens, which uh, I thought was a, a nice way in, actually, because uh, this is a team who are forcing high numbers of corners against all the big boys. So no reason why they can't do similar against Luton. Let's take it from Northern England to Northern Wales. Wrexham against Wimbledon. It's high time we checked in with Wrexham. How's it all going for the Hollywood club? Oh, do they not get enough press already, Kev? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, here. They, Stinch, get... Stinch gives them a fair few no. mentions. It has to be said, but he's more of a yeah. Notts County man, isn't he, really? Black he is, but he might, he might have to change tact after Notts County lost their a highly rated head coach, Luke Williams, to, to Swansea recently. So um, that's one to one to watch in future weeks. But yeah, Wrexham, they're going well. Um, they've won 10 of the last 14 games. They're within striking distance of the top and they've got a game in hand over Stockport as well. Um, their home record is, is exceptional. I would have more concerns about Wrexham whenever they travel away. They seem a bit more fragile, a bit more vulnerable. But at home, at the racecourse ground, they are... Remarkable, really. They've played 13 home games and they've scored 41 goals in those 13 <laughs> fixtures. That's an it's average like of three. Bayern kind of levels. Isn't yeah, really? yeah. Three, three fifteen per game. Um, and they've scored at least twice in every single home league game this season, which is incredible, really. And I think what's more impressive for me was recently they hosted uh, Barrow, who have been going way above and beyond pre-season expectations and, and their budgetary um uh, where their budget allows them to, to be or expects them to be. And they put four past them at the race course ground. And Barrow are probably one of the best defensive teams in the, in the division. They scored three against Crew, who are up in the top seven as well. They scored three at home against MK Dons, 
three teams in the top eight. And this weekend they're playing Wimbledon, who are also in the top eight. Now, Wimbledon can be obdurate and they can be good at kind of keeping teams at bay, similarly to Barrow. But if Wrexham can do this to Barrow, then I'm sure they can do it to Wimbledon. So I'm going to back Wrexham to score at least two goals, over 1.5 goals. It's four to five, uh, which is really quite appealing considering it has landed in all 13 of the home games. Um, But I did look into Wimbledon just to see how easily can they be got at. And I think they definitely can be because, first of all, they've been really, really hampered by uh, AFCON and Asian Cup duty. Their two forwards are away uh, in those two competitions. Um, Ali Al-Hamadi, their star striker especially, will be missed. And whilst that shouldn't, in theory, affect their defence, I think it will disrupt them. It will unsettle them. Uh, last weekend, they were held at second bottom for a screen 1-1. They conceded three goals in their previous game against Colchester. Um, and I looked at their last four games against Sutton, Colchester, Forest Green and Crawley. Three of those four teams are in the bottom three of League Two. They conceded 61 shots in those four games and an XG tally of 6.19. That is not ideal. Uh, if you're conceding that amount of chances, that amount of shots against three of the worst teams in the league, then how are you going to fare when you go to Wrexham? So that was kind of the deciding factor for me. I'm not just backing it because Wrexham have done it in every game, although that is, you know, argument enough, really, if you want to back them at four to five to repeat it this weekend. But just Wimbledon's lack of availability in forward areas and then also the the worries, really, about their recent performances against uh, lesser lights would, um, you know, cause plenty of concern for me if I was a Dons fan this weekend. Uh, I'll be off jet-setting again this weekend, off to Germany uh, for the uh, resumption of the Bundesliga season. I'll be on the mic for Bayern against Hoffenheim. Bayern going very, very well in terms of their attacking play. However, they are not top of the league by Leverkusen, keeping them off top spot at the moment. This game against Hoffenheim takes on a completely different complexion, really, and vibe since the passing of Franz Beckenbauer, who is arguably the greatest player German football has ever seen. He was instrumental in the building of the modern Bayern. Bayern weren't even in the Bundesliga in the first season of that competition back in the early 60s, but he got them promotion. He also led them eventually to win Bundesligas and European Cups galore. And of course, so successful uh, with Germany as well, not just as a player, a wonderful libero that he was, but also as a coach getting to two World Cup finals and indeed winning the latter of those two. So it's going to be quite the occasion, Mark, as Bayern do face Hoffenheim. Hoffenheim away from home this season have been very, very good, but are they going to be able to withstand Harry Kane and company? Possibly not, or probably not, I should say. Um, but I'm eager to get your your views on, on my selection. Um, I'm going to back Bayern Munich to win the game and both teams to score, which comes in at 6-5. to five. Um, I think that's a, a fantastic leap. Uh, Bayern around 1.17, 1.18, to get them at almost a full point bigger, um, just by including both teams to score, really does stand out. Bayern have had... A few troubles, a few hiccups this season, but in Munich, in the Bundesliga, they've been super strong. Six wins from seven, only dropping points against Leverkusen. Um, They scored 30 goals in those seven games, but we probably don't need to justify them winning this game. I think most people can probably imagine and understand why we would be with Bayern in this fixture, especially considering the the um, off-field goings on in the past week. But... um, from a Hoffenheim perspective, they've kept just one clean sheet all season and they've conceded multiple goals in 10 of their 16 games. They've also lost five or six against the top eight. But 
there's something about them which you've already kind of alluded to that um they're just they just come with an attitude of you know we're going to give it a go and i think we've seen that in some of the big games that matter they scored twice against leverkusen they scored three times against stuttgart they scored away at leipzig and i think key for Bayern here is the absence of kim who has been their best defender yeah, so far this huge. season yeah so he's away at the asian cup i know he's not a first choice regular but masrawi is away at afcon so you're looking at a back four of Lima at right back, Upper Meccano, Delict, and Davis, who on paper, nothing wrong with that at all. Um, Lima will always do a job for you at right back, even though it's not his preferred position. Upper Meccano and Delict together, yeah, they should be fine, but they don't, they don't always um, seem well, that way. Fit a lot of the time as well. They haven't, Upper uh, Meccano, Delict have had spells out. Um, yeah, I agree with you. And Delict will be desperate to impress, but don't worry. Big Eric Dyer's there now, <laughs> so it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. Yeah, I'm not sure he's the defensive midfield option for Tuchel's been craving since he joined. Um, oh. Even if he's going to play central defensive midfield or, or centre half, but um, yeah. And then you, you look at Hoffenheim again. They look like they'll probably start Weghorst and Kramerich together in forward areas and. Whilst many Premier League fans might scoff at that kind of partnership in forward areas, I think there's a lovely balance about the two of them. Um, I think they work well together. There's that mixture of pace, physicality, um, plus the team's got that width and the set-piece threat as well. I yeah. think Hoffenheim can be really difficult to contain when they're on it and they fancy it. And I think they do. Uh, they can be dangerous underdogs too. So, yeah, I would definitely keep them on side scoring a goal in this game. I don't care if they get thumped 6-7-1 here, um, as long as they score, because I think they're well capable of it. And, and Bayern, you know, at home in Munich, you don't ever really want to oppose them. So I thought two points here was a, a really nice prize, actually. We're going to have another selection in the Sunday show in the Bundesliga. And I wonder whether me and Mark have the same pick for that one. I have a suspicion that maybe we do. Let's take it to La Liga. Real Betis against Granada. What do you make of this one, Mark? I always like watching Real Betis. I think they, they've got some fun players in that team. And I'm very much a fan of uh, Pellegrini as well. Yeah, me too, really. And I, I want to be with them uh, in this game. No surprise. Really playing a, a Granada team who've who struggled to their second bottom of La Liga um, away from home. They've been terrible, uh, really. They've taken just one point from nine away games. Um, that includes six games against teams outside of the top eight. So they've not even been playing the elite sides and they've still been struggling to pick up results. I've got them second bottom unexpected points away from home. They've got the second just XG process away from home. To me, they look really easily opposed here. Betis trading around 1.6, um, which on the surface is, is bigger than I had them on my tissue. But um, to build it into something more palatable, just include under four and a half goals. And you've got a price of nearly evens to, to back Betis out here, which is really quite appealing. Um, they are the draw kings in La Liga this season, 10 stalemates already. Um, but I think crucially for them, Isco is back from suspension for this game. And he has been not far off his best, actually. Um, since signing for Betis, he's been a, a real joy to watch in Spain this season. Not necessarily in his output. The goals and assists haven't come as as freely as he perhaps would have hoped, but his his play in open play has been sumptuous. Um, he is a real live wire again, and it's nice to see him kind of getting back to standards he set probably, you know, God, how long ago? Five, six, seven, eight years ago. Well, he had a real um, point to prove, didn't he? And actually, Pellegrini, they worked together at Malaga and he played some good stuff there, I seem to remember. Um, he needed somebody who believed in him. I mean, he went to Sevilla. Lopetegui brought him there because he he played really well for Lopetegui in the in the under twenty one team 
with Spain and then Lopetegui left and he's like, oh, thanks. Thanks <laughs> for that. And then it was just a nightmare. He was linked with Union Berlin. There was a big argument about wages, changes to the contract late on, didn't go there. So it's actually quite nice to see him enjoying his football. Yeah, really much. And it feels like a good fit at Betis, a team who, you know, as you said in the intro, they do like to play good football. They are aesthetically pleasing, as you can say. And um, I think they'll win this game relatively comfortably. They do have, you know, it'll be kind of headline news that they're missing three players on international duty, but only one of those is a first team regular, uh, Chaddy Riyad, the, the centre half. So they're not really kind of impacted massively here. Uh, the home record is very strong against teams outside of the top eight, five wins from six. I've got them ranked fifth in terms of home expected points, fifth in terms of XG process at home as well. Um, and look, their games don't tend to escalate into shootouts either. Uh, just two of their matches across the whole campaign have, have been over four and a half goals. And if you look at the home fixtures, actually seven of nine have gone under two and a half, let alone under four and a half. So um, perhaps Betis to win to nil, but I think the more um, suitable selection for me would be to back Betis to win under the four and a half goals just because of the range of correct scores you get on your side. You've got the four nil thrashing as well as the three one. Uh, or even a 2-1. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to oppose Granada and it feels a good time to be with Betis. Now there's been a clamour, an outcry, a collective scream of anguish at the thought of Mark O'Hare's Scott Watch being axed. Mark, as we tiptoe into 2024, where are we at on this? Yeah, I'm happy to say that Scott Watch will be making a return, but yes. not oh, this okay. Week. Not this week. Um, the Scottish Premiership is on a, a winter break. Uh, I feel it's a good opportunity it's just to have a, a week off Scott Watch. Uh, there is still football taking place in the Championship to to League Two. Um, however, again, we are in the bit in the midst of a, a cold spell to a cold snap, and it wouldn't be a huge surprise to see half a dozen games called off on Saturday and kind of ruin a load of research done on Wednesday, Thursday for this segment. So, with your permission, we're going to take a look at Afcon. Wonderful. Yes. So uh, the African Cup of Nations kicks off this weekend in the Ivory Coast. And our website, betting.betfair.com, is going to have a daily tip sheet throughout the tournament. We've already got a host of pieces up there. Full tournament guide, a rundown of which Premier League players have travelled to the tournament. And James Easton is very, very good. He does our Liga coverage. Uh, he's written an anti-post piece as well. So, Mark, if we... Look at the outrights first, I guess. Where's the value for you? Where are you looking at in terms of teams that may go all the way or may spring a surprise and just go at least a long way? Yeah, AFCON, from an outright perspective, is is very, very difficult, I think, to, to find a strong view or a strong opinion to back up through this tournament, largely to the fact that if you look at the outright market, though, I think there are nine teams Rated at fourteen to one or shorter, which, which is a hell of a lot. Incredibly competitive. It's quite a crowded field, that isn't it? Really, <laughs> it really is. So you've got to have a very strong view of one of those nine teams, or very strong viewers views against some of those sides to be confident in your selection. And even still, do you really want to be cheering on a six to one shot when there's possibly half a dozen alternatives who've got just as good a chance, really, as well? So. It's a competition that can be prone to upsets, can be prone to surprises. I think that's largely down to the low-scoring element of the tournament. I think most people know that AFCON does tend to be kind of an under-two-and-a-half goals paradise, really. Low-scoring games increase the likelihood of an upset, especially in knockout stages when penalties can come into play as well. So 
it is relatively rare for a final to be contested by two of the real sort of leading lights. There can be an opportunity for a, a team to spring from from outside the obvious. Um, and yeah, just due to that sort of jeopardy towards the top end of the market, I felt like a a good opportunity to to pose all of them. Really, I think from the front runners, I probably would favour Senegal, who are the defending champions. But it's so competitive, you could make a case, I think, for the majority of the this kind of sub-Saharan front runners. I'm happy to dismiss Morocco. Um, I think they're false favourites. We did target them as a, a lively outsider in our World Cup preview. Um, but I just think this situation is totally different stylistically. You know, are they going to be able to play their counter-attacking game? Not so much, really. The onus will be on them to, to play front foot football more often than not. They will be the, the pre-match favourites from the outset, really. Of course, they're well stocked with individual quality. But um, like a lot of North African teams, they do tend to struggle in this region of the continent, really. Um, so you could include Tunisia in that. I think they're they're definitely one to oppose towards the top end of the market. I'm not as fond on Algeria as James is in his outright preview for similar for similar reasons of, uh, of Morocco, really. I also feel like they're perhaps a team who are just on the wrong side of their peak um, key players, just getting that little bit older now. So I think Ivory Coast, Senegal, Ghana all have strong claims out of the, the lead of the market. Egypt, um, would possibly be the only one of the North Africans I would consider, but the price is, is really, really short here. And I think Cameroon are one to avoid as well. So Mali were the team who took my attention from the the teams just outside that opening huddle. They're around 22.0 on the exchange, um, a 13 to 8 to win Group E, which also appeals. They're in that group alongside Tunisia, South Africa and Namibia. Um, as I say, Tunisia don't tend to fare well, fare well outside of their own sort of region of Africa. They're quite a stodgy outfit, just look well, easily opposed to those prices as favourites in that group. But Mali, they've been dark horses in this competition for, for probably a decade or so now. It's never Are really they come the to Turkey push. of Africa. Every time <laughs> there's a Euros, we go, oh, Turkey could do well. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 And I, I've probably been caught in that trap again this time around with Mali. But it feels like a, a good opportunity to get them on side, just as a team who are kind of going under the radar a little bit this time around. The squad is still very strong, and a lot of the squad have grown up together playing in underage tournaments, which have had a huge success, not just in Africa, but on the world stage too. They're a maturing squad. Um, it just feels like it could be the right time for them to make a splash. Uh, in terms of where the, con the competition is taking place, Mali's not too far from Ivory Coast whatsoever, so climate and conditions will suit. They've got loads of talent. They performed really well in qualification um, going forward and also defensively too. Um, and, you know, I just thought they've been dismissed a little bit, being sort of 21 to 1, 22.0 on the exchange here, um, compared to the likes of Tunisia, who I think they will have the edge on in the group. I think they've got much more going for them going forward. And defensively, they can be just as solid as Tunisia. And you look elsewhere, South Africa and Namibia, they should be teams. They should be able to get past there. And, you're in the knockout stage, potentially playing a third place team in the last 16. And from there, it's, it's anyone's game, I think, from, from the quarterfinals. So Mali were worth a look. And then I've got a, a kind of back to lay opportunity at a big price. Oh, go on then, Mark. Back to lay. <laughs> always like one of those, a back to lay opportunity at a big price. Actually, before you say that, just it did occur to me, a lot of people will be looking at Victor Ossiman with Nigeria, won't they? Not least because... Victor Boniface is going to miss the tournament with injury. So Ossiman's going to be the main man for Nigeria, isn't he? So I guess if people are looking at top scorer or something like that, your eyes are going to naturally be drawn to him, aren't they? 
Yeah, absolutely. My, my fear with Nigeria is they might be a little bit top heavy. Um, they do have quality across the board, but you look at the the Arsenal they've got in forward areas, and it's it's pretty formidable even without Boniface. But do they have enough elsewhere to kind of allow those forward players to to work their magic? And that would be a, a question mark for me. But similarly, in in the top goal scorer market, the it's so so competitive. You got Salah there at five to one favourite, but Egypt traditionally aren't a, a kind of free scoring side. Um, Mane is also up there for Senegal, but he's had a, a difficult campaign in Saudi Arabia. Um, Ozemen obviously has to be a candidate too if Nigeria going to go far. El Naziri from Morocco. I've already kind of outlined my concerns there. Sebastian Allaire is a is a, is a potential there too. So. Um, I found the top goal scorer market really, really difficult this time around. And in fact, if I was going to get involved there, I'd be looking at a couple of long shots. And um, Bertrand Traore uh, for Burkino Faso, more on them shortly. Um, he's not played much from Aston Villa this season, but he'll go there fresh. Um, and he always tends to perform for his country, seems to really relish the occasion. Um, obviously, he's got that vers- versatility, uh, adaptability to play anywhere really across the front. He'll be on penalties for Burkino Faso. And um, he's got a good goal scoring rate on the international stage too. Uh, and just as a real kind of wild card, just I mentioned Mali, uh, Kamori Dumbia, um, I might have pronounced his surname wrong there, but uh, he's an attacking midfielder who can play up front for Mali. He is on loan at Brest from Rams in Ligue 1, uh, having a real kind of breakout campaign at the moment. Again, he's adaptable, he's versatile, can play anywhere really in attacking midfield, in the hole or up front as well. And he's making real ways to Mali this season. He's been scoring goals regularly um, and he should be heavily involved um, as one of, you know, Mali will be one of the more front foot teams in Africa. You've got basically two relative outsiders in that group too. So potentially he could get a couple of goals before the knockout stages. But um, yeah, I mentioned Traore just because Burkino Faso looked to me to be underrated and ignored here in the outright market. They're around 50 to 1. Um, I'd back them down to about 40s, but probably no shorter than that. They are quite an unfashionable team, uh, but they are a team and a nation who just always tend to perform way above their odds. They are not no-hopers. They were semi-finalists at the last AFCON. They lost to eventual winners Senegal in the semis. They were runners-up in 2013, third in 2017. They do have pedigree as a, a nation that can get past the first hurdle and compete. They've got a nice kind of smattering of talent across the field. It's not just condensed in one area, which can be a case for some of these teams. Uh, you've got Tapsoba, as you know well, Kev um, from Leverkusen. Uh, be, he'll be one of the best defenders in the competition. Uh, Dango Otara of, of Bournemouth, who's very adaptable. Traore, I like him a lot. He's, uh, yeah, he's brilliant. I really like him, yeah. He's really flourishing this season as well, which is great to see. Um, and yeah, they've got a savvy head coach in, in a, a French guy who's got great experience coaching in, in Africa and Hubert Valoud. Um, so they've had a, a good qualifying campaign. They're in good form. They're in a group with Algeria, Mauritania and Angola. Now, Algeria would be the obvious danger, I think, in that group. But um, as I said, the, the climate and conditions might not suit them. It will for Burkina Faso, who are a neighbouring country to, to Ivory Coast. So they might get extra support across the border. Um, obviously, conditions suit. They're playing Mauritania first, who are the group outsiders, which may help get them off to a good start. Um, and also, if you finish top of this group, I think it's Group D, you're playing a third-place team in the last 16, which is a big help. Uh, if you're runners-up, you play the winner of Group E, which would be Tunisia or Mali. So uh, potentially you've got Mali coming up against Burkina Faso there, but that's possibly a, a bonus, really, if we're on both that's of them. That's a good thing. Um, I was going to say, at least you get one yeah. of them through, don't you? 
Yeah, yeah. So 50 to 1 to win outright. Um, you could back to lay it or you can just cheer it on on the sports book if you back them each way. Um, also, they're 4 to 1 to win Group D, which I thought was well worth a look, uh, considering my slight concerns over Algeria. Lovely stuff. So uh, that, I think it's going to be uh, on Sky Sports, I think. So you'll be able to watch those games and you'll be able to keep an eye on it all the way through on our website, betting.betfair.com. Dot com. That's all we've got time for on this edition of Football Only Better. Please do remember to gamble responsibly. In the Sunday show, we're going to be focusing on Manchester United against Tottenham. Who should we do that with? Well, it makes sense to check in with Dimitar Berbatov, seeing as he excelled for both clubs. We'll be hearing from him ahead of that big game. And we'll have plenty more besides from Mark from and from me. Uh, I forgot there were only two of us there. It's <laughs> goodbye for now. <laughs>